Welcome to another edition of Perception Reception. I'm really delighted to welcome a dear, dear friend for decades, uh, Sherry Bustos. She is the U.S. Representative, Member of Congress from the Illinois 17th District. In her previous life, before she went to Congress, she was a journalist, much like her father. She was an executive with a major health system. And now uh, she is just finishing up her tour of duty as the chair of the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. And Sherry, welcome. And a good place to start our lessons learned. What, what have you taken away from the 2020 election cycle and election day uh, last week? Let me start by saying, Rick, thank you for, for having me on. Um, you are a dear friend. I, and to your point that we go back decades, um, just for the, the sake of the audience, yeah, you and my father were very, very close friends. My dad, the late Gene Callahan, was a journalist that wrote a political column um, and then uh, was a chief of staff at the state level for Paul Simon when he was in the lieutenant governor and then went on to be chief of staff to um, Alan Dixon, who went on to be a, a United States senator. So um, I, I think it's important to kind of lay that groundwork about how long our friendship goes back. And he was my mentor uh, as well. Uh, he, he truly was. Well, you, you are a dear friend, and, and I'm, I'm really grateful to, to be here with you. But yeah, I, I think we'll be unpacking the lessons for, for quite a while. We, are, we have already started doing what we call a, a deep dive, uh, an after action review that um, I told my caucus, the Democratic caucus in the House, U.S. House of Representatives yesterday, that I said, you know, the, the unanswered questions that we have right now, we'll get answers to them. But um, a, a theme was this. We've got to get the answers to what did happen with this polling. You know, when you look at internal and external, the presidential, the House, the Senate, Republican, Democrats, almost everybody had it wrong. Um, I, I, I talked to um, Ed Perlmutter, a member of Congress from, from Colorado yesterday. He said they got it right in, in Colorado. They got it right in Colorado. Um, why? Why did they get it right? I want to know why they got it right. The, uh, the Iowa poll, um, you know, uh, Ann Selzer, she, she was the one who was showing that this was not going in our direction. But, but, but again, those are just these kind of these one-offs or these two-offs. You use polling, and, and Rick, you know this, you use polling to guide so much of what you do, where you're going to invest in races, where you're going to move money around, how your messaging is delivered. The, uh, the, the messaging that you stay on, the messaging that you stay away from, that is all based so much on polling. And um, when that was so far off, um, you know, we got the, the outcome that was very different than we thought it was going to be. Um, but I did finish my conversation with my colleagues last night. And I just said, you guys, we, we, we have to look at this as the glass half full, not half empty. We held the majority in the House. Um, we, we won the White House. Joe Biden will be our president. Kamala Harris, the first black and Indian American woman, woman ever in the history of our nation, um, will be our vice president. And we are two special elections away from being able to uh, lead the Senate. So overall, you know, it should be a glass half full, not, not necessarily half empty. Yeah. Uh, although what's gone on since Election Day, Sherry, he has me concerned, uh, as I'm sure he has a lot of people cons concerned, and, and it's uh, getting magnified by the media, which I'm not sure is 
uh, a great thing uh, all the time. You know, you have um, a president sitting in the White House who is clearly defeated, that won't acknowledge it. You know, you have his, his attorney general, uh, you know, sending out orders, uh, you know, to, you know, be vigilant, look for, look for the, the uh, corruption in the, in the electoral system. You have the Secretary of State uh, talking about the second Trump term. Um, and, um, you know, the situation we, we, we have um, are starting in January, we're going to have uh, a few less votes in the, in, in the House, and we're hopefully going to take the Senate, uh, win those two races in Georgia. I pray we do that. But uh, it's going to make it for Biden and Harris, it's going to make it a very challenging governing scenario uh, based on what I'm seeing now. Do we have reason to hope that that will restore some sanity and civility uh, as we get closer to January 20th? Well, you know, we, we've seen what Donald Trump is over the last four years. You know, it, it's not like I don't think anybody should be surprised by what he's doing right now, nor should anybody be surprised by uh, Bill Barr. I mean, Bill Barr is I, I, I don't know what happened to that man, but he does not have a deep understanding that his job is to represent the United States of America, not Donald Trump. Um, I think he's a disgrace. But I, I don't think we, any of us should be surprised by the, the behavior that we're seeing right now. Look, d- democracy is on our side. And when I say our side, I mean on the side of Americans. Uh, the Constitution is on the side of, of democracy. And th- this will play out. It will delay the fact that there's going to be a smooth transition from a Trump administration to a Biden administration. Um, but this is just this is a matter of time. The Electoral College, uh, the, the numbers are are in Joe Biden's favor. And um, it's just this is just getting dragged out and it's getting messier than any of us hoped. But I don't know if it's different than than many of us expected. Now, you, you made a decision just yesterday to not continue on as the chair of the DCCC. And I know that must have been a very difficult uh, decision to make. Talk, if you can talk a little bit why you came to that conclusion. Well, sure. I, I would I would say um, I've had three careers in my life. Um, a journalist for 17 years. I worked in healthcare for 10. And now I've been in Congress for eight. And I'm going into my fifth term. Um, and I've had some challenging, challenging moments in my career. But the last two years um, have been the toughest job I've ever had um, ever in my lifetime. They've been challenging emotionally. They've been challenging uh, intellectually. They've been challenging in terms of my relationships with some of my colleagues. What I find very interesting about this is job number one um, going into this election cycle was to hold on to the majority, the House majority for Democrats. And we did that. Now, let me tell you why that was job number one and why that was so hard. We have uh, going into this election cycle, 31 Democrats were in Trump districts, 31. Um, some of those were Trump plus 30 districts, okay? Some were Trump plus 18, Trump plus 10, really, really hard races. So job number one was to bring back as many of these tough, 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 uh, win as many of these tough, tough, tough races as we could. We did that. We did that. Now, not all of our colleagues are coming back. And um, that is, that's sad because we these are really good members, members like Debbie Mukersel Powell out of South Florida, Kendra Horn out of Oklahoma, 
uh, Joe Cunningham out of South Carolina. Um, so she tore us small out of New Mexico. Really, really wonderful people in some of the toughest districts in the country. And, um, you know, and they didn't all come back, but we held on to the majority. Um, as we have this conversation, we lost six uh, Democrats who were in these really tough districts. Um, they were on our front line. They were, uh, we, we call them our front line because they are the toughest districts on the front line. And then we had uh, our red to blue candidates. These are Democrats running in Republican areas. We didn't pick up what we, what we had hoped to pick up. But what I, I don't, I think what, I don't know anybody who, who predicted that the Trump voters would come out in these massive, massive numbers that they did. What, what was it, Rick? 72 million? Yeah, I mean, as of right now, and of course, votes are still being counted in Arizona, Pennsylvania, uh, a couple other states. But it, right now, as of this morning, uh, 77 million for Biden, 72 million for Trump. You know, the good news, uh, uh, Joe Biden has won with the biggest vote total in presidential history. But, you know, Trump came in uh, and as the losing candidate, he had more votes uh, than we've seen in other elections. So it it sort of personifies the split of of, of voters in this nation. Yeah. And and so anyway... um, you know, I mean, I can try to, and this isn't spin, you know, I mean, I'm just, I'm just trying to say we accomplished the major job that we need to accomplish, but it was a really, really tough two years. And um, in my own race, I come from a Trump district. I'm in Illinois. We have 18 House members in our delegation, uh, 13 are Democrats, five are Republicans, 12 of the 13 Democrats are from Chicagoland, and I am the 13th. And so this, this is all we have in downstate. Donald Trump won my district in 2016. He won it again last week, um, and I and I won. It was a, a much closer race than than I was hoping. And you know, and the woman running against me was, I mean, the the fact that she had any traction is really almost baffling to me. She had no roots in this area. She moved here um, a year ago, and within weeks of moving here, she's unpacking her moving boxes, and she said she's running for Congress. And yet, you know, because she had an R next to her name, she, she ran pretty well. And I, and I think that is where this conversation and that is where we as Democrats at a national level need to figure out the brand of the Democratic Party, having a D next to your name, um, especially in a rural area um, or a swing district. What are we going to do to improve um, that brand of having a D next to any candidate? running. And, you know, I, I think Dems are in a, in a better position than we've ever been from this perspective in recent memory. We've got a Democrat in the White House, or we're going to. We've got the Democratic majority um, in the House. And again, two special elections away from having the lead in, in the Senate. So we hopefully can get some things done, but um, I'm, I'm ready to, to legislate and focus on legislating with, a, with Joe Biden in the White House. Well, we're all looking forward to that. That is for sure. One of the things that's always blown me away about your approach to being uh, an elected official is uh, not only your work ethic, which is incredible, but uh, also the creativity you bring uh, to what you do. Uh, So Supermarket Saturdays, Sherry on Shift, 
Uh, talk a little bit about those programs and the importance of listening. And then talk about, uh, if you can, and I realize it's still, you're still processing. I mean, for those who don't know, the 17th district is, is a geographically huge district. It, it stretches, you know, from the north all the way to Freeport, I believe, through Rock Island, uh, all the way to parts of Peoria and, and huge rural areas in between the, those Illinois cities. And uh, talk a little bit about your, what your approach has been, because it's been a, uh, you know, pretty damn successful approach to uh, representing the people. And then if you can talk about what you think is, is going on, why, why it was more challenging this time than it has been in your previous four runs. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So I will, I'll back into to that. Um, so back to the description of this district, it is 7,000 square miles. It does go from central Illinois in, in Peoria all the way to the Western border. So the Mississippi river is the Western border. Um, so I can see Iowa from my porch um, and it goes all the way up to the state of Wisconsin over to, to the uh, city of Rockford. So uh, 711,000 people. It is um, an ag, we have an ag driven economy. John Deere's world headquarters is um, in the city where I'm talking to you from in Moline, Illinois. Uh, the combines that are sold all over the world, they're made right down the street from where I am right now um, in East Moline, Illinois. And uh, we have 9,600 family farms, a lot of manufacturing, very blue collar. Family of four makes around $45,000 here. Um, it is one of the um, um, lesser college educated districts when you look at all the, the, the districts all over the country. So, um, so that's a description of the district that I have. I defeated a Republican in 2012 to get here. It, as I said, Donald Trump has won this district. It, it's, it, it had one of the biggest swings in the nation from, from President Obama to President Trump. In a four-year period, it swung 18 points. Unbelievable. So, okay. So yeah. that's just to paint that picture. So what I've done, I've lived in Illinois my whole life, you know, so I, so I know Illinois. Um, I've lived in this congressional district for 35 years. Um, my husband is the sheriff of Rock Island County, where I'm calling you from. Um, we've raised our three boys here. All three still live in Illinois. Uh, I, I know this area very, very well. I, I feel like I'm just one of us. And, and I, think, I think that's important. So um, I really kind of go back to my years as a reporter in how I approach this job. So when you mentioned Supermarket Saturdays, all that is, is up until COVID, every Saturday, virtually every Saturday, I would just go to grocery stores all around this congressional district in all corners in all, all 14 counties. And I just walked the aisles um, with no agenda other than to introduce myself. I, I just always say, I'm Sherry Bustos. I serve this area in Congress. I'll be flying back out to Washington on Monday. What do you want me to know? What's on your mind? And it open-ended. I don't ever try to steer it. Uh, I, I can tell you that I could almost go into any election cycle without polling because I do that so often. I know what comes to mind first. It's typically some, something around healthcare. I know what that, that would be like 1A. 1B would typically be something about around the economy. Um, you know, how hard people are working, how many jobs people are working, how it's so hard to pay their bills, um, that sort of thing. Usually Donald Trump's name would, um, would not come up, sometimes not at all. 
And, and so it's not like that was always top of mind. It was more like what, what is of concern to people? So, so that's one thing I do. The, the other thing, as you mentioned, Sherry on shift, I've done 101 of these. And that is just where I do different jobs, um, you know, work shoulder to shoulder with somebody who's changing the, the street bulb from a cherry picker 30 feet off the ground or um, working shoulder to shoulder with somebody who's changing an air filter in a locomotive at the BNSF rail yard in Galesburg or uh, somebody who is pouring um, hot steel into a mold. There's a forge right down the street from, from me and the, the people who show up on 90 degree days working, you know, beside these furnaces that are just, you know, you can't even believe how hot it is. And this is what they do day in and day out. So I've just learned a lot from people in what they do, how hard they work, what, how they support their families, their challenges, um, their dreams. I always like to ask, the question I always like to ask is, what do you do for fun? And, and what that, it gets to somebody's disposable income, right? You, you realize, are they able to take a vacation? Are they able to, um, you know, go, go out to the movies? Uh, you know, just, just all of that. And I, I think something that was very emblematic was the story from this home care nurse who's married to a guy who works for one of our cities. And when I asked what she did for fun, she said they had cable television. <laughs> and I, I, and why that, why that stays with me. And this was probably three, four years ago, but that stays with me because I just think about how, you know, she should have been angry about saying that that's what she does for fun, you know, but, but she wasn't. And I said, well, do, do you not like to go to the movies? And she said, um, well, we can't afford to go to the movies once you buy four tickets and, and popcorn and soda. Cause they had two little girls, you know, so this is, this is the story of so many families that when you're in Washington, DC and you're making a good wage, like a member of Congress does, you better not lose sight of what people do when they're changing that air filter in a locomotive or changing that street bulb or they're pouring that steel or forging that steel or working as a home care nurse. You just better never lose sight of that. And that has helped me always remember who I serve. Um, it, it helps us guide our legislation, our votes. And it, it really has been something that um, I will continue to do um, as long as I'm in this job. It's just very, very helpful to me. And I think it's helped us stay in touch with what, what really matters to people. So, you know, you talk about your district and, and um, uh, as you know, I, uh, we have a, a family home up in Northern Wisconsin. It's in Ocano County, an hour north of Green Bay is a frame of reference. It is a combination of small towns, rural areas. It's the Southern edge of the Nicolay National Forest, um, blue collar workers, people in agriculture, heavily Trump district. And right now, uh, Lauren Foley, who produces this, is rolling her eyes because she knows where this is going. Because four years ago, three and a half years ago, uh, we went up there. I was going to make a presentation. You invited me to the Democratic House Democratic Policy and Communications Committee. And I figured rather than, you know, uh, an hour of Rick rambling on, uh, we'd have a video. And so Lauren gathered a group in a tavern. A uh, friend owns a tavern uh, up in uh, Townsend, Wisconsin. And um, a half dozen, 
seven, eight people gathered, mostly Republican, a few independents and a couple Democrats. And to a person, they all honestly said the same thing. And it stuck with me. And, and it still sort of gnaws at me, which is that we aren't, we're frustrated. We're not respected. We're not listened to. Nobody cares what our opinions are. Uh, Washington is broken. They can't get anything done. You know, we need to shake things up. My retort to them is, well, look, how's that worked out so far? But uh, while while that may make me feel better, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily change the landscape, whether it's in the Illinois 17th or up in O'Connell County. So what do we as Democrats need to do? Because the, a, a couple of them said the only time we see the Democrats is right around the election time. They're not here to listen. They ask us for money. And right now, we, we need to feel like we're part of the nation. And I, it's heartfelt. And, and so I'm what are we missing as Democrats that we need to address? I, I, I think that our, our brand needs some work. Uh, the brand, and when I mean the brand, I mean the Democratic Party. Um, so after the 2016 election, when um, Donald Trump won and we had a, a very a poor performance as Democrats, all over the country. And, you know, we all woke up that next morning after the election and just like couldn't believe it. I did a report, you know, Robin Johnson, Rick? Yes, I do. Um, Robin, who's a friend of Rick's and a friend of mine, he's a professor at Monmouth College in Monmouth, Illinois, which is in my congressional district. He, I think he knows Midwestern politics, especially rural Midwestern politics as, as well as anybody I know. And so he and I wanted to get the answers to the question you just asked, what are we going to do going forward? So we ended up talking to 72 Democrats in eight Midwestern states who were successful, where mostly Democrats were not successful. So mostly rural areas, all different levels of elected office, state legislature at the city level, um, et cetera. And we wrote this report called Hope from the Heartland. And maybe in, you know, uh, you can like, we can, if you Google Hope from the Heartland in Bustos, it'll come up. Um, and it's anybody can download it um, and you can you can read it. There's a there's a synopsis, like an executive summary, if you don't want to read the whole thing. But but let me tell you some of the um, findings in that. And it applies today. And, and I, I really wish more people, especially in uh, in rural areas, uh, Democrats all over would follow this. But it, it, it really does start with showing up and listening. You know, to your point before, Rick, I mean, we've all got to raise money and it is we so desperately need campaign finance reform. Uh, this this last election cycle ought to be evidence of it. You know the ungodly amounts of money that 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 was spent on these races. You know what my husband said. You know when I would say, "Oh my gosh, we raised whatever." Um, you know we ended up raising almost a third of a billion dollars. That's unbelievable. Just, just at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, when I told my husband that, he said, "That's a sin." That's a sin. And what he meant by that is you think about what that money could be used for to help people. It's hard to disagree with that. I mean, that's exactly right. So so anyway, um, but so it, but it does get back to, you know, people are tired of just hearing us call and say, you know, can you contribute? We got to show up. We got to listen. We got to do these supermarket Saturdays and supermarket Mondays and supermarket Wednesdays and go to every corner of every district of, in any race. 
and do, you know, whatever anybody's name is. I call it Sherry on shift because my name is Sherry, but it could be Jimmy on the job or it could be um, Tony on the task or, you know, what, whatever it, it is. But but see what people do for a living. My, my youngest son is a sheet metal worker. And I can tell you, you know, when it is those ungodly hot days that we had this past summer, he's out working in, you know, these hot places and, and he's using his hands. And, you know, anybody who thinks that that is any less of a, of a hard job than anybody else, or my husband who's been in law enforcement, think about somebody in law enforcement for 37 years, never, never a blemish on his record, never, no accusations of any treating anybody unfairly. But you think about just wearing that uniform and, and, some, and the image that some people have of that. And I, and I know how he treats people, whether you're black or brown or white or, or, you know, I know how he treats people fairly and he prides himself on that. You know, just so you just think about what all these people do for a living and we better start trying to bring us together and listen first. Don't, don't, don't jump to conclusions because of what somebody's job is or what somebody's skin color is. And, um, and, and first, you know, seek to understand, right? First seek to understand. And I, it really does start there. And some of the other lessons that we learned in our report, though, is it is you know showing up and listening. But even how we run our campaigns, you know, I I actually um, did billboards this cycle um, and talked about my Farm Bureau endorsement. I'm a Democrat that got the Farm Bureau endorsement. Well, I wanted I wanted our 9,600 farmers to know that. But doing things like that, rural radio. I do rural radio. I do black radio. I do Hispanic radio. Um, you, we've got to speak to people in the language that they understand. And I don't just mean like if it's Spanish, but I mean the language, like you understand, like the ag language, um, or the blue collar language and go to people where they are. That brings me to, to the important role. And I'll admit, you know, I'm, I'm from a different generation. Uh, but you know, I, I always have respected the importance of, field organization. Um, and I know that a number of the campaigns have done a really good job in field organization. But, um, I, you know, I don't know if the party itself, uh, the DNC, uh, invests enough time 24-7 in field organization. I realize as you're ramping up to a campaign, yes, you do it. Uh, but uh, is there a need for the Democratic Party to spend, to do what you're saying, and, and not just a candidate running for office, but the party itself do more to be uh, listening to what voters in rural areas and in small towns have to say. Yeah, um, so we did something at the uh, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee to cycle that we called the cycle of engagement, mm -hmm. meaning we started work in the off year. Now, um, if, if we had had like big gains, I would, you know, we'd say we got this right. You know, we, were, we invested in the off year. And, and because of that, we made these gains. So what's interesting about it is um, we have been doing focus groups and um, research in, you know, in, in, among um, black voters and Latino voters and Asian American voters. Um, all over the country and in swing areas to try to make sure that we had an understanding of how best to communicate uh, the topics that were most important. Um, all of that, that started, we actually started this in early 2019. What I think would cause some problems for us 
the, the pandemic really changed things. You know, our grassroots organizing all of a sudden had to turn virtual. We developed something called the Virtual Action Center, which was very effective from the perspective as we had hundreds of thousands of people engaged through um, millions of voter contacts. But it's not the same as if you're going out door knocking or having a rally or sitting down and having, you know, in somebody's living room, having these conversations. It's just not as effective. And frankly, I think Republicans actually benefited from being irresponsible in, in, in that they did go out and did the rallies in person without masks and without social distancing. They did knock doors. We didn't do that. We did everything virtually. I think they were rewarded for being irresponsible in the fact that they interacted. And I, I think in the end that benefited them. But but you're but you're right, Rick. It has this cannot be you know months before an election that we we work on our field operation. Um, we need more people trained from, for instance, the Midwest to work on Midwestern races. We need people who look like our our constituents. So, like if in in Peoria, where we have a a, a bigger black population, um, we need to make sure that our organizers are black and to help us. Make sure that we're, do, we're doing a good job in the black communities that, you know, you don't want somebody coming to you who like is got a, you know, say a Southern accent, you know, coming to, um, you know, Moline, Illinois. So what I'm saying is that homegrown talent is, is really, is really, really important. By the way, it's worth noting my best voter outcomes were in black communities in, in my congressional district. And I am very, very grateful. And I can tell you this. I pledged when I was first running that my office staff would look like the communities we serve. Our offices would be um, in communities where we serve. So for instance, in Rockford, this might not mean a lot to some people, but our office is on the west side of Rockford. And that's important. The member of Congress who had served that area for 20 years never had an office on the west side of Rockford. My office is, um, you know, we, we reflect the community that we serve. It's right. very diverse. Our office is very diverse, and I'm proud of that. One one last question. I can't believe how fast this time has passed by, but you know, looking ahead now, and and, and from a governance point of view, if I'm not mistaken, you're on both the uh, ag committee and the appropriations committee. You have been a, an important part of the House Democratic leadership. What are the the two or three biggest priorities when? Uh, Joe Biden and uh, Vice President Harris walk into the White House on January 20th? I, I think there will be three things. And, and number one, we'll be have to have a national strategy on uh, the, this getting past this pandemic. And that will be that will involve tracing, testing, treatment, um, having a plan to get the, this vaccine that we, we think that has some promise out to all Americans to, to be a good steward in the world on, on the, the, this uh, pandemic relief. Um, I think that's got, that will be number one. Number two, it will be how do we not just get up and crawl out of this, uh, this economy that we're in right now, but how do we get up and sprint? And I think that will involve a, an infrastructure package that will involve getting broadband to every corner of this country. It will be rebuilding schools um, and improving schools, especially like the, the ventilation and all yeah. of that. We have, these old schools that, that need to be replaced, re, rebuilding those. Same thing with rural hospitals, getting that in a good place. Our roads, our bridges, our locks, our dams, all of that will be part of this infrastructure package. And I think the other thing is, this ties in with the pandemic, 
but making sure our healthcare gets in a place where it's affordable, where, where if you walk out of your doctor's office, you can actually afford to fill your prescription, bringing down the cost of prescription drugs. So I think those will be the top three priorities. Couldn't agree more. And I, I, I hope those remain the priorities and that, uh, you know, God willing, uh, we're all as a nation able to make progress on all three of those goals because they are so important to our, our lives, our future, our grandchildren. So Representative Sherry Bustos, thank you so much for being a guest on Perception Reception. You know, I uh, admire who you are as a person and uh, who you are as a public servant. So thank you. Thank you, Rick. I really enjoyed our time together. You're right. It goes very, very fast. But thank you very much for, for having me on as your guest. Take care, Sherry.